Hey everyone, I'm Nate Vinio, and this is Something to Gnaw On, a short podcast for those short on time, intended to give you something to mentally and spiritually chew on throughout your day. A Bible study in bite-sized form, if you will. And occasionally, may look a little more like my journal. This episode is The Radioactive Mentor. They were instructed to sit on the deck of the ship, backs to the blast zone, and to cover their eyes with their hands or the crook of their elbow. This was considered proper protective protocol in those days. In the past several years, the British government has declassified the records of these tests, and several sailors have given interviews regarding the tests of the atom bomb and its aftermath. An interesting theme emerged. They described light so intense that they could see the bones and veins in their hands or arms, and if they were facing you with their eyes closed, they could see your skeleton. After the light, one man described a warm sensation of, quote, a man on fire walking through me, end quote. It's perplexing to think of a light that is so bright, shining through every sailor seated behind them, and still illuminating the bones and the circulatory structure in their hands and their arms, and even the skeleton of the man seated in front of them. A shadow-free light, a living x-ray, an inescapable light, complete exposure. This ups the ante on understanding the intensity of biblical references to God being light, and Jesus being, quote, the light of the world. It's everywhere in Scripture, but do we really understand the full depth of it all? It's a common trap to interpret biblical references by current standards or personal understanding. It's not that it's entirely wrong, it just may lack the intended clarity or depth. If Jesus is the light of the world, is he a 40-watt G soft white light bulb? Is he a blinding halogen or LED headlight? A flickering fluorescent gym light? A neon light on the side of a building intended to pass along some advertiser's message? Does the light of the world have a switch that can be turned off or dimmed? The Bible is peppered with references to God being light, not just metaphorically, but in a very practical sense. It's a common thread in God's appearances to mankind. Let's start in the New Testament and work our way back to the Old. Christ's birth is announced by a choir of angels with an epic light show. However, the light of Christ is veiled until the transfiguration where it's lifted and his light becomes apparent to Peter, James, and John. Paul is blinded by the light when he encounters Christ and he's forever changed. When you read up on these two episodes, you'll find two common characteristics. First of all, it's an overwhelming, almost paralyzing light, a shock and awe flashbang event that, one, it humbles the most proud and stubborn of human beings. It also reveals everything. Truth, lies, motives, thoughts, behaviors. There are no more secrets. See John 3.19 on this, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says, The problem is this. Light has come into the world, but some love darkness and fear exposure. The presence of light will cause some to run and hide and cause others to become pliable and useful. Secondly, 
In addition to the shock and awe of God's unveiled presence, God speaks life and direction and truth. And this is always the point. God isn't just into scaring people, but he's absolutely about getting their attention so he can deliver a message. It usually isn't a long message, but it's to the point. To Peter, James, and John, God says, quote, This is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. If we jump to the Old Testament now, to Isaiah 6, God shows up. Isaiah is overwhelmed, and he humbles himself. He confesses his sin of unclean lips. And then God says, Who shall I send? And yes, all of that pomp and circumstance in Isaiah 6 for a four-word question. Who shall I send? We could easily look at other characters in Scripture like Paul or Stephen and see the same dynamic. God's light shines down on someone's life, and they are immediately in the presence of the Lord. The intensity of the moment is too much to bear, and most hit their knees or fall on their face in awe and legitimate fear. When the time is right and the heart is right and the relationship with God is right, God delivers his message. And not only do these guys find themselves in the presence of the Lord, they respond obediently to the message. And this is the four-part paradigm, living in and experiencing the presence of God while at the same time listening to and responding to his word. Let's dig a little deeper in the Old Testament for this paradigm. This paradigm was the bedrock of Moses' life and a legacy that he bestowed upon Joshua. This wasn't a singular event as much as it was a pattern of life, a lifestyle of living in and experiencing the presence of God while at the same time listening and responding to his word. This is evidenced by a distinct physical change to Moses when he came out of the presence of the Lord. His face glowed, so much so that people shielded themselves from Moses' radiant disposition, a nature that cannot be manufactured, contrived, or conjured. It's more like becoming radioactive after coming in contact with plutonium or uranium or any other form of radiation. There's no shaking it off, no washing it off, no covering it up. He is radioactive, and people look at him from a distance. Few get close for fear of contamination, for fear of what radiant light will reveal in their own lives. But Joshua took a front row seat. Look at Exodus 33, verses 7 through 11 in the Amplified Version. Now Moses used to take his own tent and pitch it outside the camp, far away from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting of God with his own people. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all of the people would rise and stand, each at his tent door, and look at Moses until he entered the tent. On a personal note or side note, note the distance between Moses and the people. The people could go to the tent of meeting, but when Moses goes to the tent, they keep their distance. Back to Exodus 33. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the doorway of the tent. 
and the Lord would speak to Moses. When the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the door, all the people would rise and worship, each at his tent door. Again, notice the distance. The tent of meeting is outside the camp, and people are worshiping from their tent door. Back to Exodus 33. And so the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. And when Moses returned to the camp, his attendant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Notice the proximity. I will be elaborating on this topic of mentoring and mentorship, if that's even a word, in future episodes. But for this episode, I want to close with an observation and a couple of questions. First, the observation. There's a significant difference in leading and mentoring. Consider those that kept Moses at a distance, building idols, complaining, being generally discontent, and Joshua, who is at Moses' right hand most of the time, and especially at two of the most epic moments in the biblical record. Moses led millions, taught millions, but he mentored few. Nothing takes the place of personal presence or proximity. Mentoring is personal. Mentoring is relational. It is not an event. It's a track record of events. If mentoring could be broken down into bite-sized formula, the three pillars would be as follows. Close physical proximity, a significant amount of time, and a significant trait, skill, or characteristic to be passed. The relationship between Moses and Joshua encompasses all three, and the result is epic. After a 40-year mentorship, the reins of leadership are passed and Joshua leads the Israelites into the Promised Land. God placed a leader over the Israelites who had been mentored not a guy with an academic degree, not a guy from a specific bloodline, tribe, or some well-connected group, not a guy with a broad resume, but a guy that had spent years learning God's heart from the author of the Torah or the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, whatever you want to call it, a guy that had spent plenty of time in the presence of the Lord, a guy that learned battle strategies from a former Egyptian general, Curious about that? See Josephus' account of Moses' life. A guy that learned to weather revolts and rebellions. Joshua became a guy that was so dialed in to his relationship with God that when the whole nation of Israelites defied God, he'd stand toe-to-toe with a million rebels bent on killing him before he would dishonor or disobey God. See Numbers 14 if you want to read up on that story. You don't get that kind of backbone in a four-year degree program. It comes from mentorship. It comes from a person like Moses who lives and experiences the presence of God, listening to his word and putting it into practice. That person then slowly and repetitively deposits the lessons into a person who remains in proximity over a long stretch of time. Forty years in the case of Moses and Joshua. Joshua being the leader who led the military campaign in the taking of the Promised Land. 
Joshua being the leader that established a nation on a practical level. Joshua being the leader whose conquests are still studied by military tacticians. Joshua didn't become who he was because of his personal study or an online degree or his pedigree. He became the man history knows him as by the grace of God and a hardcore mentoring program. A mentoring program that wasn't designed for him to be like Moses, but a mentoring program that fostered or empowered his relationship with God. That's why Moses leaves him at the tent in Exodus 33. While it may happen, the goal of biblical mentoring is not for the mentee to become like the mentor. The real goal is for the mentee to become like Christ. And if you want to do some deeper study on this, check out Philippians 2, especially verse 5, where Paul is mentoring the Philippians, if you will, instructs them to have the mind of Christ, an interesting contrast to that. He mentions, as opposed to grumbling and complaining, which is a phrase that is used by Moses towards the Israelites on a regular basis. So a question or two to round out this episode. The mentoring coin has two sides. Who are you mentoring? Who are you spending quality time with, depositing wisdom, knowledge, experience, and training into on a regular basis? Flip side of that coin is, who's mentoring you? Who is spending quality time depositing wisdom and knowledge and experience and training into you on a regular basis? And the coup de grace, are you being mentored by the Holy Spirit? Earlier, I mentioned the paradigm of living in and experiencing the presence of the Lord and the discipline of listening and responding to the Word. So the question is, are you living, experiencing, listening, and responding to the Holy Spirit? Ultimately, it's this mentoring by the Holy Spirit that makes us radioactive like Moses. It's this radioactive dynamic that changes our lives and the lives of those around us, those who are routinely in close proximity to us, those we mentor. So I ask you, are you radioactive? I'm Nate Vinio, and this has been Something to Gnaw On. Check out the show notes at somethingtognawon.com. Buzzsprout, B-U-Z-Z-S-P-R-O-U-T dot com and find and friend me on Facebook. And as always, if you are blessed by this or know someone who would be, please feel free to share with friends and family. God bless.